of my baddies. I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting. Actually, I'm sure you've probably been waiting for me to finish this damn book. And I have. I have finally finished the last three chapters of The Subtle Art of Not Giving Up. Beep. Which, thankfully, it's finally come to a conclusion. And not thankfully because I didn't totally enjoy the book, but thankfully because I have literally had this book in my possession, been trying to read it. Now, I think it's been like a year. I think the first time I posted about this book on my Instagram saying that I was going to cover it was like last November. And that is so crazy because it should never take that long. But you know what? That's just the way that it went down this time. Um, But thankfully, we are finally done with it. And I'm so excited to finish this book. When it comes to some of these self-help books, I feel like the last couple chapters kind of drag on and it's like not a lot of really good new information. It's just kind of like reiterating the same thing that they've talked about throughout the whole book. But this one actually finishes pretty strong. So I'm very happy about that. So let's get into this. We are on chapter seven and it's called failure is the way forward and as you already know the author loves to throw in anecdotes stories whatever to kind of just help explain the content a little bit more and so that you feel connected to it and he does that through these last three chapters as well and so this one kind of starts off with his little journey of when he graduated college in 2007 he said it was just in time for the financial collapse and great recession and he attempted to enter the worst job market in more than 80 years so he really just kind of felt like he got the shit end of the stick but then he goes into saying when you're already failing you can't really be afraid to fail and i totally agree you know, you only can go up from there. And so that's what he talks about. He says, failure itself is a relative concept. If my metric had been to become an anarcho-communist revolutionary, then my complete failure to make any money between 2007 and 2008 would have been a raving success. But if, like most people, my metric had been to simply find a first serious job that could pay some bills right out of school, I was a dismal failure. He grew up in a wealthy family. Money was never a problem. They also used money to avoid their problems and solve them. He said, I was again fortunate because this taught me at an early age that making money by itself was a lousy metric for myself. You could make plenty of money and be miserable, just as you could be broke and be pretty happy. Therefore, why use money as a means to measure my self-worth? Instead, my value was something else. It was freedom, autonomy. The idea of being an entrepreneur had always appealed to me because I hated being told what to do and preferred to do things my way. I feel like that's most of us. But just because you don't like authority or don't like being told what to do doesn't mean necessarily that you should be an entrepreneur. He says, the idea of working on the internet appealed to me because I could do it from anywhere and work whenever I wanted. Honestly, I think that's really the beauty of being able to like do remote work now and like there's a ton of jobs that are remote jobs, which I think is beautiful and one of the awesome things that came out of COVID because then you can go and you can be like on the beach. Well, depending on like what kind of remote work you do, um, but you can kind of be anywhere in the world and work and that's amazing. So much more freedom. But he said, I asked myself a simple question. Would I rather make decent money and work at a job I hated or play at internet entrepreneur and be broke for a while? 
The answer was immediate and clear for me, the latter. I then asked myself, if I try this thing and fail in a few years and have to go get a job anyway, will I really have lost anything? The answer was no. Instead of a broke, unemployed 22-year-old with no experience, I'd be a broken, unemployed 25-year-old with no experience. Who cares? With this value to not pursue my own projects became the failure. Not a lack of money, not sleeping on friends' couches, and which I continued to do for most of the next two years, and not an empty resume. And this is one of the greatest parts of this book, I think. And it kind of just touches on like your view of success and failure is totally up to you. He goes into saying, which I've read this before somewhere else, when Pablo Picasso was an old man, he was sitting in a cafe in Spain doodling on a used napkin. He was nonchalant about the whole thing, drawing whatever amused him in that moment. Kind of the same way teenage boys draw penises on the bathroom stalls. Except this was Picasso. So his bathroom stall penises were more like cubist impressionist awesomeness laced on top of faint coffee stains. Anyway, some woman sitting near him was looking on in awe. After a few moments, Picasso finished his coffee and crumbled up the napkin to throw away as he left. The woman stopped him. Wait, she said. Can I have the napkin you were just drawing on? I'll pay for it. Sure, Picasso replied. $20,000. The woman's head jolted back as if he had just flung a brick at her. What? It took you two minutes to draw that. No, ma'am, Picasso said. It took me over 60 years to draw like this. He stuffed the napkin in his pocket and walked out of the cafe. He goes on to say, improvement at anything is based on thousands of tiny failures and the magnitude of your success is based on how many times you failed at something. If someone is better than you at something, then it's likely because she has failed at it more than you have. If someone is worse than you, it's likely because he hasn't been through all of the painful learning experiences you have just goes to show you that all of these failures when it hurts when it happens or you feel like such a loser or you feel like why am I not good enough at this it's like a stepstone you learn from it you get better and you take the next step and you've got to look at failures like that because in our life there's going to be so many of them but if we're too afraid to try we will always be stagnant I don't think you'll ever truly be happy if you stand still and why not just fail a couple times? What are you so afraid of? Embarrassment, looking like a failure? What Would you rather be a failure to yourself or to other people? I think that's the biggest question that you have to ask yourself when you're worried about taking that next step. He then goes to say, this confines us all and stifles us. We can be truly successful only at something we're willing to fail at. If we're unwilling to fail, then we're unwilling to succeed. A lot of this fear of failure comes from having chosen shitty values. For instance, if I measure myself by the standard, make everyone like me, I will be anxious because failure is 100% defined by the actions of others, not by my own actions. I am not in control. Thus, my self-worth is at the mercy of judgment by others. You cannot base your success on others. Like I just said, are you willing to look stupid and like a failure in front of everybody else or to yourself? If you're so afraid to do it because you don't want to be a failure to others, you're never going to be happy. No matter what, you could do the greatest thing in the world and to one person it could be amazing, to the other it could be absolutely stupid garbage trash. <laughs> a little extra there, but hey. He then goes into saying, my self-worth is based on my own behaviors and happiness. 
Shitty values, as we saw in chapter four, involve tangible external goals outside of our own control. The pursuit of these goals causes great anxiety, and even if we manage to achieve them, they leave us feeling empty and lifeless because once they're achieved, there are no more problems to solve. Boom, that is a gem. Better values, as we saw, are process oriented. Some things like express myself honestly to others, a metric for the value honesty, is never completely finished. It's a problem that must continuously be re-engaged. Every new conversation, every new relationship brings new challenges and opportunities for honest expression. The value is an ongoing lifelong process that defines completion. If your metric for the value success by worldly standards is buy a house and a nice car, and you spend 20 years working your ass off to achieve it, once it's achieved, the metric has nothing left to give you. Then say hello to your midlife crisis because a problem that drove you your entire adult life was just taken away from you. There are no other opportunities to keep growing and improving, and yet it's growth that generates happiness, not a long list of arbitrary achievements. In this sense, goals, as they are conventionally defined, graduate from high school or college, buy a lake house, lose 15 pounds, are limited in the amount of happiness they can produce in our lives. They may be helpful when pursuing quick short-term benefits, but as guides for overall trajectory of our life, they suck. Picasso remained prolific his entire life. He lived into his 90s and continued to produce art up until his final years. Had his metric been become famous or make a buttload of money in the art world or paint 1,000 pictures, he would have stagnated at some point along the way. He would have been overcome by anxiety or self-doubt. He likely wouldn't have improved and innovated his craft in the ways he did decade after decade. The reason for Picasso's success is exactly the same reason why, as an old man, he was happy to scribble drawings on a napkin alone in a cafe. His underlying value was simple and humble. It was the value, honest expression, and this is what made that napkin so valuable. For many of us, our proudest achievements come in the face of the greatest adversity. Our pain often makes us stronger, more resilient, more grounded. Many cancer survivors, for example, report feeling stronger and more grateful after winning their battle to survive. And I would absolutely agree. Um... I don't think with cancer you technically ever win because it is kind of like a lifelong thing, but you can get to a point where you're like, okay, you know, just recently I celebrated my one year without cancer and I can tell you just having made it the first three months without the cancer coming back and then the next three months and then the next three months and then the next three months, like you always get anxiety when it comes up to do the scans because you're like, okay, well, I felt completely healthy and stuff when I got cancer, so I might feel completely healthy now. It doesn't mean that I am. And so you go in there still in the back of your mind, oh, it might come back, it might come back. But I have never been more grateful for my life, for the experiences I've been through, for the people I have met, even when a lot of times they were shitty. Like, that's just life though. But I am so grateful for every single experience that I have been through because I have learned something. I have learned something about myself. I have gotten stronger. I've gotten wiser, more understanding, more compassionate. All of these things that really truly make us connected to people and make us human beings, I wouldn't take any of it back. It has brought me such a new perspective on life. 
what my true happiness is, what I really want out of life. And I'm thankful that I got it at such a young age because now I can really move throughout my life doing things with purpose and that really make me happy. Dabrowski, a Polish psychologist in the 1950s, and he had had a little story about it before, but he goes into saying, Dabrowski argued that fear and anxiety and sadness are not necessarily always undesirable or unhelpful states of mind. Rather, they are often representative of the necessary pain of psychological growth, and to deny that pain is to deny our own potential. Just as one must suffer physical pain to build stronger bone and muscle, one must suffer emotional pain to develop greater emotional resilience, a stronger sense of self, increased compassion, and generally happier life. And I cannot agree more. He goes into saying, Our most radical changes in perspective often happen at the tail end of our worst moments. It's only when we feel intense pain that we're willing to look at our values and question why they seem to be failing us. We need some sort of existential crisis to take an objective look at how we've been deriving meaning in our life and then consider changing course. You could call it hitting bottom or having an existential crisis. I prefer to call it weathering the shitstorm. Choose what suits you. I can't stress this enough, but pain is part of the process. It's important to feel it because if you just chase after highs to cover up the pain, if you continue to indulge in entitlement and delusional positive thinking, if you continue to overindulge in various substances or activities, then you'll never generate the requisite motivation to actually change. He goes into saying he always gets a question, but how? When really it's as simple as just doing. He said, I get emails from people asking questions like this all the time, and for many years, I never knew what to say to them. There's this girl whose parents are immigrants and saved their whole life to put her through medical school, but now she's in med school and she hates it and she doesn't want to spend her life as a doctor, and so she wants to drop out more than anything, yet she feels stuck. So stuck, in fact, that she ends up emailing a stranger on the internet, me, and asking him a silly and obvious question like, how do I drop out of med school? He goes into pretty much a couple little scenarios of like the same thing. And he says, you just do it. The problem here is pain. Filling out the appropriate paperwork to drop out of med school is straightforward and obvious action. Breaking your parents' heart is not. Asking a tutor out on a date is as simple as saying the words. Risking intense embarrassment and rejection feels far more complicated. So this is pretty much, again, choosing your pain. He says, many people, when they feel some form of pain or anger or sadness, drop everything and attend to numbing out whatever they're feeling. Their goal is to get back to feeling good again as quickly as possible. Even if that means substances or deluding themselves or returning to their shitty values. And like I said, I have done this before when it came to a relationship, I had the pain of leaving the relationship and wanted to kind of just get rid of that. So I went back and instead of having the pain of moving on and getting over the relationship and doing the work, instead of choosing that pain, I chose a pain of going back into a relationship I really didn't like anymore. I didn't feel valued. I didn't feel appreciated. I didn't feel a lot of things that you should in a healthy relationship, but I went back because I wanted to numb that pain instead of having the pain of just moving forward and getting over it and really then feeling better in the end. That was the pain 
that was worth it was moving on. And like he said, you have to choose which pain you're willing to go through. And sometimes it might hurt and it might suck, but ultimately gave me my life back, my happiness back, my confidence back, everything. He said, you have to learn to sustain the pain you've chosen. When you choose a new value, you are choosing to introduce a new form of pain into your life. Relish it, savor it, welcome it with open arms, then act despite it. I won't lie, this is going to feel impossibly hard at first, but you can start simple. You're going to feel as though you don't know what you're doing, but we've discussed this. You don't know anything. Even when you think you do, you really don't know what the fuck you're doing. So really, what is there to lose? And it's extremely scary, but that's the only way to do it. Life is all about not knowing and then doing something anyway. All of life is like this. It never changes. Even when you're happy, even when you're farting fairy dust, even when you win the lottery and buy a small fleet of jet skis, you still won't know what the hell you're doing. Don't ever forget that and don't ever be afraid of that. He goes into a little story about when he was in high school and his math teacher, Mr. Packwood, used to say, if you're stuck on a problem, don't sit there and think about it. Just start working on it. Even if you don't know what you're doing, the simple act of working on it will eventually cause the right ideas to show up in your head. He goes into talking about some mantras or mantras. Tomato, tomato, same thing. He would say, don't just sit there, do something. The answers will follow. And then he goes into saying action isn't just the effect of motivation. It's also the cause of it. Most of us commit to action only if we feel a certain level of motivation and we feel motivation only when we feel enough emotional inspiration. We assume that these steps occur in a sort of chain reaction like emotional inspiration, then to motivation, then to desirable action. But he said, if you want to accomplish something but don't feel motivated or inspired, then you assume you're just screwed. There's nothing you can do about it. It's not until a major emotional life event occurs that you can generate enough motivation to actually get off the couch and do something. The thing about motivation is that it's not only a three-part chain, but an endless loop. It can go from inspiration to motivation to action to inspiration to motivation to action, etc. Your actions create further emotional reactions and inspirations and move on to motivate your future actions. Taking advantage of this knowledge, we can actually reorient our mindset in the following way. Action makes inspiration, then makes motivation. So I think that's really beautiful because I think we all get that way where we feel like we need inspiration to have motivation, to have action. But if we actually just start doing something, we take action, we create inspiration as we go and we get inspiration from every little step and move that we make. And then it creates the motivation to keep going and doing. If you lack the motivation to make an important change in your life, do something, anything, really, and then harness the reaction to that action as a way to begin motivating yourself. He goes into how he gets inspiration. Whenever he was designing a website, he would just start with the header. And then after that, he would start moving and he would get inspiration by little steps that he would take. And this is how I feel when I write papers. So I'll just start with, it could be like a body paragraph. It could be like something so random, like a topic, an idea, whatever, and just start like moving on from that. And then you grow your entire paper from there. 
I don't always start with the introduction. I feel like a lot of people don't, maybe some do, but I feel like you start somewhere in the middle and then you figure everything else out as you go. That's just really honestly how I do a lot of things in my life is I just, I'm like, fuck it. I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but I'm just going to start somewhere and then we'll figure it out as we go. And it might be a piece of fucking shit, but I figure it out and that's what matters. If we follow the do something principle, failure feels unimportant. When the standard of success becomes merely acting, when any result is regarded as progress and important, when inspiration is seen as a reward rather than a prerequisite, we propel ourselves ahead. We feel free to fail and that failure moves us forward. The do something principle not only helps us overcome procrastination, but it's also the process by which we adopt new values. If you're in the mindset of an existential shitstorm and everything feels meaningless, if all the ways you used to measure yourself have come up short and you have no idea what's next, if you know that you've been hurting yourself chasing false dreams, or if you know that there's some better metric you should be measuring yourself with, but you don't know how, the answer is the same, do something. That something can be the smallest viable action towards something else. It can be anything. And with simply doing something as your only metric for success, well, then failure pushes you forward. Like I said, these chapters in the end, they really just like gave some awesome gems. It didn't just start going down the shitter like towards the end. It actually was a really good book throughout. So so then he goes into chapter eight, the importance of saying no. In 2009, he gathered up all of his possessions, he sold them or put them in a storage, and he set off for Latin America. He went and traveled a lot um, throughout his early years. He said he went through a lot of traumatic shit as a teenager, and it left him with a nice bundle of commitment issues. He would just travel all over the place. He would have a lot of sex. He would, you know, just enjoy his life pretty much. He bounced back and forth across countries and oceans in a game of global hopscotch that lasted over five years. He visited 55 countries, made dozens of friends, and found himself in the arms of a number of lovers, all of whom were quickly replaced and some of whom were already forgotten by the next flight to the next country. Now he lives in New York City. He has a house and furniture, an electric bill, and a wife, and none of it is particularly glamorous or exciting. He says, I like it that way because after all the years of excitement, the biggest lesson I took from my adventuring was this. Absolute freedom by itself means nothing. Freedom grants the opportunity for greater meaning, but itself there is nothing necessarily meaningful about it. Ultimately, the only way to achieve meaning and a sense of importance in one's life is through a rejection of alternatives, a narrowing of freedom, a choice of commitment to one place, one belief, or gulp one person. In 2011, he traveled to St. Petersburg, Russia. Russia. The food sucked. The beza sucked. <laughs> Is that Russian accent? Snow in May. Are you fucking kidding me? My apartment sucked. Nothing worked. Everything was overpriced. The people were rude and smelled funny. Nobody smiled and everyone drank too much. Yet I loved it. And it was one of my favorite trips. There's a bluntness to Russian culture that generally rubs Westerners the wrong way. Gone are the fake niceties and verbal webs of politeness. You don't smile at strangers or pretend to like anything you don't. In Russia, if something is stupid, you say it's stupid. If someone is being an asshole, you tell them he's being an asshole. I do that anyways. <laughs> 
If you really like someone and you're having a great time, you tell her that you like her and you're having a great time. It doesn't matter if this person is your friend, a stranger, or someone you met five minutes ago on the street. The first week I found all of this really uncomfortable. He went on a coffee date with a Russian girl and within three minutes of sitting down, she looked at him funny and told him that what he had said was stupid. He nearly choked on his drink and there was nothing combative about the way she said it. It was spoken as if there were some mundane fact, like the quality of the weather that day or her shoe size, but he was still shocked. After all, in the West, such outspokenness is seen as highly offensive, especially from someone you just met. But it went on like this with everyone. Everyone came across as rude all the time, and as a result, my Western coddled mind felt attacked on all sides. Nagging insecurities began to surface in situations where they hadn't in years. But as the weeks wore on, I got used to the Russian frankness, much as I did the midnight sunsets and the vodka that went down like ice water. And then I started appreciating it for what it really was, unadulterated expression. Honesty is the truest sense of the word. Communication with no conditions, no strings attached, no ulterior motive, no sales job, and no desperate attempt to be liked. Somehow, after years of travel, it was in perhaps the most un-American of places where I first experienced a particular flavor of freedom, the ability to say whatever I thought or felt without fear of repercussion. It was a strange form of liberation through accepting rejection. And as someone who had been starved of this kind of blunt expression most of his life, first by an emotionally repressed family life, later by a meticulously constructed false display of confidence, I got drunk on it like, well, like it was the finest damn vodka I'd ever had. The month I spent in St. Petersburg went by in a blur, and by the end, I didn't want to leave. Travel is a fantastic self-development tool because it extricates you from the values of your culture and shows you that another society can live entirely different values and still function and not hate themselves. This exposure to different cultural values and metrics then forces you to re-examine what seems obvious in your own life and to consider that perhaps it's not necessarily the best way to live. In this case, Russia had me re-examining the bullshitty, fake nice communication that is so common in Anglo culture and asking myself if this wasn't somehow making us more insecure around each other and worse at intimacy. And I so fucking agree with this. Like, I feel like we all coddle the fuck out of each other and we just don't tell each other what we really mean. And this is like what I think is the downfall of a a lot of relationships. Friendships, romantic relationships, family relationships is like beating around the bush. Instead of just telling someone how you feel, what are you going to sit there and be miserable? And then you resent the person and then the relationship goes down the shitter. Like you would rather fuck up the whole relationship, then just have an uncomfortable conversation and work through it. He says, there is so much pressure in the West to be likable that people often reconfigure their entire personality depending on the person they're dealing with. And that's true. I feel like a lot of people go and they pretend to be someone else because they want to be liked, they want to be accepted. But why would you try to make everybody else happy when you can just be yourself and then you'll You'll have the people who truly care about you for who you are rather than a whole bunch of people who like you for this fake person that you're being. Rejection makes your life better. As an extension of our positivity consumer culture, many of us have been indoctrinated with the belief that we should try to be as inherently accepting and affirmative as possible. This is a cornerstone of many of the so-called positive thinking books. 
Open yourself up to opportunities, be accepting, say yes to everything and everyone and so on. But we need to reject something. Otherwise, we stand for nothing. If nothing is better or more desirable than anything else, then we are empty and our life is meaningless. We are without values and therefore live our life without any purpose. The avoidance of rejection, both giving and receiving it, is often sold to us as a way to make ourselves feel better. But avoiding rejection gives us short-term pleasure by making us rudderless and directionless in the long term. To truly appreciate something, you must confine yourself to it. There's a level of joy and meaning that you reach in life when you've spent decades investing in a single relationship, a single craft, a single career, and you cannot achieve those decades of investment without rejecting the alternatives. The act of choosing a value for yourself requires rejecting alternative values. If I choose to make my marriage the most important part of my life, that means I'm probably choosing not to make cocaine-fueled hooker orgies an important part of my life. (laughs) If I'm choosing to judge myself based on my ability to have open and accepting friendships, that means I'm rejecting trashing my friends behind their backs. These are all healthy decisions, yet they require rejection at every turn. The point is this. We must give a fuck about something in order to value something. And to value something, we must reject what is not that something. To value X, we must reject non-X. That rejection is an inherent and necessary part of maintaining our values and therefore our identity. The desire to avoid rejection at all costs, to avoid confrontation and conflict, the desire to attempt to accept everything equally and to make everything coherent and harmonized is a deep and subtle form of entitlement. Entitlement because people feel as though they deserve to feel great all the time. Avoid rejecting anything because doing so might make them or someone else feel bad. All they give a fuck about is sustaining the high a little longer to avoid the inevitable failures of their life, to pretend the suffering away. He goes into boundaries. Yeah, this part is really just kind of about relationships and unhealthy love. And he goes into saying that the truth is there are healthy forms of love and unhealthy forms of love. Unhealthy love is based on two people trying to escape their problems through their emotions for each other. In other words, they're using each other as an escape. Healthy love is based on two people acknowledging and addressing their own problems with each other's support. The difference between a healthy and unhealthy relationship comes down to two things. How well each person in the relationship accepts responsibility and the willingness of each person to both reject and be rejected by their partner. By boundaries, I mean the delineation between two people's responsibilities for their own problems. People in a healthy relationship with strong boundaries will take responsibility for their own values and problems and not take responsibility for their partner's values and problems. People in toxic relationships with poor boundaries or no boundaries at all will regularly avoid responsibility for their own problems and or take responsibility for their partner's problems. What do poor boundaries look like? Here are some examples, which I probably don't even fucking need to tell you guys, but he goes, you can't go out with your friends without me. You know how jealous I get. You have to stay home with me. My coworkers are idiots. They always make me late to meetings because I have to tell them how to do their jobs. I can't believe you made me feel so stupid in front of my own sister. Never disagree with me in front of her again. I'd love to take that job in Milwaukee, but my mother would never forgive me for moving so far. Blah, 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 blah. All the red flags, all the red flags. 
In each scenario, the person is either taking responsibility for problems and emotions that are not theirs or demanding that someone else take responsibility for their problems and emotions. And I think there's like levels to this, but I think it's really important that we do recognize the levels because I feel like once they start off small, they can kind of grow into like larger issues. Entitled people adopt these strategies in their relationships as with everything to help avoid accepting responsibility for their own problems. As a result, their relationships are fragile and fake. Products of avoiding inner pain rather than embracing a genuine appreciation and adoration of their partner. This goes not just for romantic relationships, by the way, but also for family relationships and friendships. An overbearing mother may take responsibility for every problem in her children's lives. Her own entitlement then encourages an entitlement in her children as they grow up to believe that other people should be responsible for their problems. The mark of an unhealthy relationship is two people who try to solve each other's problems in order to feel good about themselves. That was me. I was a fixer and I never felt good about it, actually. Always made me feel pretty shitty. A healthy relationship is when two people solve their own problems in order to feel good about each other. Therapy, that is the key. The setting of proper boundaries does not mean you can't help or support your partner or be helped and supported yourself. You both should support each other but only because you choose to support and be supported, not because you feel obligated or entitled. And I think that was a lot of my problem is I always felt obligated to like take care of a lot of things. And I don't, I mean, I know why, because like the other person made me kind of feel that way just by manipulating, I guess. I don't know. It's a question to ask my therapist. He goes into saying, entitled people who take the blame for other people's emotions and actions do so because they believe that if they fix their partner and save him or her, they will receive the love and appreciation they've always wanted. These are the yin and yang of any toxic relationship. The victim and the saver. The person who starts fires because it makes her feel important and the person who puts out fires because it makes him feel important. These two types of people are drawn strongly to one another and they usually end up together. Their pathologies match one another perfectly. Often they've grown up with a parent who each exhibited one of these traits as well. So their model for a happy relationship is one based on entitlement and poor boundaries. Oh my God, that was like my family. My mom literally took care of everything in the house and like with the kids and everything because my dad went and he worked but then he would come home and like sit on the couch and then that was it and because of his like lack of effort she had to make up so much for it and and then I think that was like me growing up that I would end up with these people who would I don't know do something for me so then like I then felt like I had to do everything else for them. My dad he made good money and he took care of the family that way but his effort in the family was so bare minimum and my mom just took care of everything else and that's why I am the way that I am. He goes into saying the victim creates more and more problems to solve, not because additional real problems exist, but because it gets her the attention and affection she craves. 
the saver solves and solves, not because she actually cares about the problems, but because she believes she must fix others' problems in order to deserve attention and affection for herself. In both cases, the intentions are selfish and conditional and therefore self-sabotaging and genuine love is rarely experienced. The victim, if he really loved the saver, would say, look, this is my problem. You don't have to fix it for me. Just support me while I fix it myself. That would actually be a demonstration of love. Taking responsibility for your own problems and not holding your partner responsible for them. And it just like makes me feel sad though, because that was like my whole past relationship. And then now when I look at it, I'm like, okay, was there like any real love at all? Guess not, because that never happened. If the saver really wanted to save the victim, the saver would say, look, you're blaming others for your own problems. Deal with this yourself. And in a sick way, that would actually be a demonstration of love, helping someone solve their own problems. If I were to say that you're blaming others for your own problems, deal with it yourself. If I were to say that in my past relationship, it would be like a three day streak of like no talking then because that's what would happen. If I said anything that was like not in agreement or anything that like actually made the person have to take responsibility for their own actions, then it was completely flipped on me and then it would be like three days of ignoring fucked up, right? Instead, victims and savers both use each other to achieve emotional highs. It's like an addiction they fulfill in one another. Ironically, when presented with emotionally healthy people to date, they usually feel bored or lack of chemistry with them. And that was me for a really long time. Seriously, I was so bad because I would just get high off of like toxic love and like all the bullshit. And I, I realize this, like I'm taking full responsibility for my fucked upness. Absolutely. I know it. I, it's like in euphoria when Maddie says, you know, I, I wish I could have a love like that, blah, 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 blah. And then the other person's like, oh, well, why couldn't you? And she's like, because I, I don't think I would ever be happy with like that kind of love. Like she loves toxic love. That <laughs> was me. That was seriously me. And I know it's something that I'm still working on as well. It's something that I have to get through. And that's why I go to therapy. And that's why I read these books. Reading these books makes me realize so much about myself. And it really, truly helps me because as soon as I can identify what I'm doing, then I'm able to take or make changes to not do them anymore. And like I would find normal relationships to be just so boring and like there was no, I never felt like any flame or passion or whatever. And it's like, that's not normal. So that's what I'm working on. He goes into saying, if you make a sacrifice for someone you care about, it needs to be because you want to, not because you feel obligated or because you fear the consequences of not doing so. If your partner is going to make a sacrifice for you, it needs to be because he or she genuinely wants to, not because you have manipulated the sacrifice through anger or guilt. Acts of love are valid only if they are performed without conditions or expectations. And I want to say too, like I have been in normal relationships as well, and I've still seen normal relationships. People do stuff like this, like they do something for you so that they manipulate you in a way to where you then feel like you need to do that for them. And it's still fucking toxic, but it was like, you know, normal people do these things as well. It can be so subtle 
these ways of manipulation that you don't really recognize it at first. People with strong boundaries are not afraid of a temper tantrum, an argument, or getting hurt. People with weak boundaries are terrified of those things and will constantly mold their own behavior to fit the highs and lows of their relational emotional roller coaster. It's not about giving a fuck about everything your partner gives a fuck about. It's about giving a fuck about your partner regardless of the fucks he or she gives. That's unconditional love, baby. He goes into how to build trust. He talks about his wife. And pretty much it just goes into how he just doesn't lie to her about things. It's like when a woman's wearing an outfit and like you don't like it and then you say, oh my God, baby, you look so good. When in reality, you actually think the outfit's trash, but you don't want to hurt their feelings. So you say you look so good. I mean, I think there's a nice way to do it and there's like a fucked up way to do it. You obviously tell the person like, hey, babe, don't really love that outfit. And like, if she's like, fuck you, I love this outfit, let her wear it who cares? But if she looks, you know, not good and you just like lie about it, then I don't think that's, you know, you just have to be honest, but there's ways of doing it. Don't be like a fucking asshole. Conflict is not only normal then. It's absolutely necessary for the maintenance of a healthy relationship. If two people who are close are not able to hash out their differences openly and vocally, then the relationship is based on manipulation and misrepresentation and it will slowly become toxic. Yep, I know that's true. When you're not able to talk through a relationship with your partner, there's a huge issue. And I knew that. And like I said, I chose to ignore it. I chose to ignore it. And what did it give me? Nothing. Nothing good. It gave me more therapy sessions. (laughs) Spend more money on my therapist because of this relationship. But that's fine. Because I saw it and I went through it and I acknowledge it. And now it's making me a better person and a better partner for my man that I am manifesting for myself. I don't want him right now. I don't want him right now. But I do have this man that I am manifesting in my life. But I honestly, I don't want him for like a couple years. So universe, don't put him in my life yet. I still got a lot of work to do. He goes into saying, trust is the most important ingredient in any relationship for the simple reason that without trust, the relationship doesn't actually mean anything. A person could tell you that she loves you, wants to be with you, would give up everything for you. But if you don't trust her, you get no benefits from those statements. And that's the fucking truth. I know this is just like a lot. I didn't trust anything really in my past relationship because the person never showed me that I could trust them. So no matter what they said, like, I couldn't be fully invested because I didn't believe anything that they said. A person could tell you that she loves you, wants to be with you, and give up everything for you. But if you don't trust her, you get no benefits from those statements. You don't feel loved until you trust that the love being expressed towards you comes without any specific special conditions or baggage attached to it. This is what's so destructive about cheating. It's not about sex. It's about the trust that has been destroyed as a result of the sex. Without trust, the relationship can no longer function. So it's either rebuild the trust or say your goodbyes. He goes into talking a little bit more about cheating and says, if people cheat, it's because something other than the relationship is more important to them. 
It may be power over others. It may be validation through sex. It may be giving in to their own impulses. Whatever it is, it's clear that the cheater's values are not aligned in a way to support a healthy relationship. And if a cheater doesn't admit this or come to terms with it, if he just gives the old, I don't know what I was thinking, I was stressed out and drunk and she was there response, then he lacks the serious self-awareness necessary to solve any relationship problems. I don't think I've ever seen a relationship come back from cheating in like my life where I've known the people. Like they always have like celebrities and stuff like that that get cheated on and they get back together because they got a family and they've got this, that, and the other. I don't think that like those are good relationships because I feel like they just get back together for some other reason, like the kids or, you know, save themselves, I guess, more embarrassment, which I would rather fucking get divorced than stay with someone and be like, yeah, he cheated on me. But also, I can't say that I wouldn't get back together with a cheater because I don't think you ever really know what you're going to do until you're in a certain situation. Like, I can't say I want to do something until I'm in that moment going through it. So I'm not knocking anyone that gets cheated on and goes back to the person. That's on you, baby. You do whatever you want to do. If you want to get back together with them, that's great. And who knows? I probably was fucking cheated on all the time. I just didn't even know it. Literally, it was probably like, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. He goes into saying the other factor in regaining trust after it's been broken is a practical one a track record. If someone breaks your trust, words are nice, but you then need to see a consistent track record of improved behavior. Only then can you begin trusting that the cheater's values are now aligned properly and the person really will change. Unfortunately, building a track record for trust takes time, certainly a lot more time than it takes to break trust. I think ultimately it comes down to the person. Like if you're willing to lose that person, why why are you going to be with them like why why even put that person through that if you're willing and you don't care that much that if you lose the person in your life or you hurt them that badly just leave them alone he then talks about uh, freedom through commitment consumer culture is very good at making us want more 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 underneath all the hype and marketing is the implication that more is better but more is not always better in fact the opposite is true we are actually often happier with less When we're overloaded with opportunities and options, we suffer from what psychologists refer to as the paradox of choice. Basically, the more options we're given, the less satisfied we become with whatever we choose because we're aware of all the other options we're potentially forfeiting. He goes into talking about, so what do we do? Well, if you're like I used to be, you avoid choosing anything at all. You aim to keep your options open as long as possible. You avoid commitment. But while investing deeply in one person, one place, one job, one activity might deny us the breadth of experience we'd like, pursuing a breadth of experience denies us the opportunity to experience the reward of depth of experience. And I love that. I've really tried to exercise this in my own life with my crafts and like my hobbies and my passions. I am a very creative person, very expressive. I love to express myself through different avenues and outlets, but honing in on certain passions of mine have then become so much more fulfilling for me and my happiness than running around and doing 20 million different things at the same time. 
I really get to experience how beautiful working hard and putting effort into one thing, how they have grown and become, you know, better and better. And I get to really experience those things. So he's talking about that, like with relationships and anything else too. People think, why would I get married at a young age? Or why would I be with this person forever? But there is so much beauty in finding a person and growing something together. I'm not a big marriage person. I've never really been a big marriage person. But I love that. I love commitment to someone. Like marriage, I think is just... This is a whole nother long story. I don't see the point of like really, you know, signing a paper and saying, okay, this is it. Because I feel like if you find somebody and you grow and you build something with them, a piece of paper isn't going to keep you guys together. And sometimes I feel like people use that as a crutch. Okay, we're married, so I don't really have to put in that much effort with this person then because they're not going to go anywhere. Instead of having a beautiful relationship where every day you choose, do I want to put effort into this person? Do I want to make this relationship work? And that shows true commitment. He goes to saying, the big story for me personally over the past few years has been my ability to open myself up to commitment. I've chosen to reject all but the very best people and experiences and values in my life. I shut down all my business projects and decided to focus on writing full-time. Since then, my website has become more popular than I had ever imagined possible. I've committed to one woman for the long haul and, to my surprise, have found this more rewarding than any of the flings and one-night stands I had in the past. I've committed to a single geographic location and doubled down on the handful of my significant, genuine, healthy relationships. And what I've discovered is something entirely counterintuitive, that there is a freedom and liberation and commitment. I found increased opportunity and upside in rejecting alternatives and distractions in favor of what I've chosen to let truly matter to me. Commitment makes decision making easier and removes any fear of missing out. Knowing that what you already have is good enough, why would you ever stress about chasing more, more, more again? Commitment allows you to focus intently on a few highly important goals and achieve a greater degree of success than you otherwise would. I just really enjoyed this. I think this is a huge thing that I'm trying to focus on in my life is being truly committed to the right things. I think I have had a fear of commitment in the past in relationships and in situations for a really long time. I felt like I don't want to miss out on anything. So why am I going to commit to like one thing? But you're not fucking missing out on anything. You're missing out on a whole bunch of bullshit that you don't need, that is not fulfilling, that doesn't stick around, that's not going to have your back. All of these things like commitment is so beautiful. So I loved the way that he wrote it and explained it. Then we've got our last chapter, chapter nine. I'm going to kind of just like run through this. It says, and then you die. He talks about this really kind of tragic moment about his friend, Josh. They were at a lake party in Texas and there was like this huge cliff. And I guess it was like late. Everybody had been drinking. Josh ended up drowning in the lake and he was talking about how that time in his life really changed a lot of things for him 
He talks about going into a deep depression. He used to dream about his friend Josh a lot. And he said, one of the last dreams of Josh, I was sitting in a jacuzzi with him. And I said something like, I'm really sorry you died. He laughed. I don't remember exactly what his words were, but he said something like, why do you care that I'm dead when you're so afraid to live? And he woke up crying. And he talks about death scares us. And it's because it scares us, we avoid thinking about it, talking about it, sometimes even acknowledging it, even when it's happening to someone close to us. Yet in a bizarre backward way, death is a light by which the shadow of all of life's meaning is measured. Without death, everything would feel inconsequential. All experience, arbitrary, all metrics and values, suddenly zero. And I talk about this um, really getting into stoicism last year when I was diagnosed with cancer and it's pretty much just like accepting death because if you know that you are dying the things that you do and what you choose to put your energy into you become more focused everything becomes more meaningful your actions are meaningful your words are meaningful He talks about Ernest Becker. He was an academic outcast in 1960. He got his PhD in anthropology. His doctoral research compared the unlikely and unconventional practices of Zen Buddhism and psychoanalysis. His ideas and thoughts were not widely accepted. He died in 1974, and his book, The Denial of Death, would win a Pulitzer Prize and become one of the most influential intellectual works of the 20th century. Shaking up the fields of psychology and anthropology while making profound philosophical claims that are still influential today. The denial of death essentially makes two points. One, humans are unique in that we are the only animals that can conceptualize and think about ourselves abstractly. Dogs don't sit around and worry about their career, and cats don't think about their past mistakes or wonder what would have happened if they'd done something differently. We are also the only animal capable of imagining a reality without ourselves in it. Two, Becker's second point starts with the premise that we essentially have two selves. The first self is the physical self, the one that eats, sleeps, snores, and poops. And the second self is our conceptual self, our identity, or how we view ourselves. Becker's argument is this. We are all aware on some level that our physical self will eventually die, that this death is inevitable, and that its inevitability on some level unconscious level scares the shit out of us. Therefore, in order to compensate for our fear of the inevitable loss of our physical self, we try to construct a conceptual self that will last forever. This is why people try so hard to put their names on buildings, on statues, on spines of books. It's why we feel compelled to spend so much time giving ourselves to others, especially to children, and the hope that our influence, our conceptual self, will last way beyond our physical self that we will be remembered and revered and idolized long after our physical self ceases to exist. And I feel this. I think that's why like a lot of people have children, even though they don't really know why they want to have children. I remember one of the thoughts that I had last year when I was like, I'm fucking dying. I don't know. I, I literally thought I had like a couple years to live. And all I thought was when I'm gone in a week, if even that, no one's going to even think about it anymore. Like no one's going to think about me. I'm not going to be here. People are going to move on. And I mean, it's true. But that I think was really hard for me. 
I think too, when I was in a relationship, I was like, this person's going to move on in two seconds because he does that. But that was like my own insecurity because I kind of knew what the situation was. I was like, oh my God, like he's just going to move on. I'm not going to be even like another thought. That was really hard for me to kind of understand and like learn to let go. And like now I could honestly give a fuck. I know that people move on and that's life. And I think it's our own ego that just wants to live on forever and be remembered. And I think that's why people want to be famous and they want this acknowledgement because they don't want it for, a lot of people don't want it for like a real reason. They just want to be known and be recognized and feel like they have worth. And that's what people are getting their worth from is the acknowledgement from others. So he kind of just talks about that. And then he goes into his last little hoorah. He says, even Mark Twain, that hairy goofball who came in and left on Hallie's comet said, the fear of death follows from the fear of life. A man who lives fully is prepared to die at any moment. Confronting the reality of our own mortality is important because it obliterates all the crappy, fragile, superficial values in life. While most people whittle their days chasing another buck or a little bit more fame and attention or a little bit more assurance that they're right or loved, death confronts all of us with a far more painful and important question. What is your legacy? How will the world be different and better when you're gone? What mark will you have made? What influence will you have caused? As Becker pointed out, this is arguably the only truly important question in your life. Yet we avoid thinking about it. One, because it's hard. Two, because it's scary. And three, because we have no fucking clue what we're doing. And when we avoid this question, we let trivial and hateful values hijack our brains and take control of our desires and ambitions. Without acknowledging the ever-present gaze of death, the superficial will appear important and the important will appear superficial. Death is the only thing we can know with any certainty. As such, it must be the compass by which we orient all of our other values and decisions. And the last thing I think that I want to say as we conclude this book is he says, You are already great because in the face of endless confusion and certain death, you continue to choose what to give a fuck about and what not to. This mere fact, this simple optioning for your own values in life already makes you beautiful, already makes you successful, and already makes you loved. Even if you don't realize it, I think that's a beautiful conclusion for the book. You are already great. You're already successful. You're already everything. So don't stress about it. Don't worry about it. Boom. The end. I think what I also want to end this episode with is the question of what is your legacy? What do you want to leave behind? How do you want people to remember you? And that is it, baddies. I love you so much. I am so happy that we went through this book together. And until next time, love you baddies.